Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. With today being that last Sunday of, of November, we move into Advent season. And now we're talking about the hope and the joy and the peace that we, that we can find in Jesus Christ. And that word Advent actually just is, comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which just basically means the coming or the arrival. All right, it's, it's like an ancient form of, some, of someone saying they were going to give their ETA, you know, I'm headed down the road, uh, Adventus, you know, 3.45 p.m. You know, I'll be there, I'm coming at 3.45 p.m. God, it, it, through Isaiah, gave us this advent, this anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah. As we turn into chapters 40 through 66, we looked at, verse, at chapters 1 through 39 that showed that Israel was in desperate need of redemption, a desperate need of reconciliation to God. And in, verses, or in chapters 40 through 66, we see how God is going to take care of that through promising a Messiah through promising a victor that would set Israel right, that would set up a glorious kingdom. And not only to Israel, but we see that it comes to us as well. That hope and that peace and that joy and that love of the Advent season is not just available to Israel, but is available to Gentiles as well because Jesus came. Because of the Adventus or because of the arrival of Jesus Christ. So the traditional Advent season, we spend most of our time after Thanksgiving and moving into the Christmas season, uh, we spend Advent season most of the time rushing around, right? We've got schedules that are full of parties. We've got shopping lists that we've got to get finished. Students are trying to get midterms and finals and all that stuff done so that they can just enjoy a holiday break. You're probably putting in extra hours at the office so you can afford to take some time off between Christmas and New Year's. Advent can get lost in the midst of the holiday rush. So that's why we want to stop, at least on Sundays, when we come to gather here and just stop and gaze at the Savior and gaze at His beauty and His holiness and, take, and just take assessment of what this season is really all about. And this season is really all about us really coming in and coming to grips with the true hope that we have in Him. The love that He has given us and shown us. The joy and the peace that we can have in knowing that Jesus is our Savior. That the Messiah, that great light, has come. That the government is laid upon His shoulders and, and all of these things. And you say, how do we reconcile all of that with the chaos that's going on all around the world? Even in, in, in the, the land that Jesus was born the chaos that's going on there. How do we reconcile this piece of the season with the chaos that's going on around here? I'll tell you how. The answer always has been and always will be found in Jesus. The answer to the peace that the world needs is found only in Jesus. The hope that we have for that peace is found only in Jesus. See, each week we're going to embrace a new concept that helps to prepare us with a sense of excitement. I hope that by the time Christmas rolls around, spiritually, our hearts have been prepared to really just to really worship Him in spirit and truth like we should. The thing is, just like with any tradition, something that we do every year, it kind of becomes something that becomes familiar, right? And with familiarity comes sometimes almost even contempt. I hope that's not what this brings, and I hope it brings also more than just warm fuzzies of, man, I remember years gone by when we used to light those candles too. Let's focus on what those candles represent. 
And it's not just symbolic, but it is a true reminder of who we have in Christ. Because fundamentally, the, the first word of Advent season is hope that we're looking at today, right? And fundamentally, the gospel of Christ is that message of hope. That God in his perfection and in his holiness and in his justice would look down upon a sinful creation, sinful humanity. That God had set up in perfection, God had set up in sinlessness, but because of our choice, we chose to sin, right? And when he looked down through our own rebellion and through a sin of our own doing, he chose to apply mercy to justice. That he chose to make salvation and pardon from sin and death a possibility, and he made eternal life a reality. And that by just placing our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Savior and confessing our sins to him, we could be guaranteed, guaranteed eternal life in heaven, but also not just have our future taken care of, but have a daily relationship with God. That's something that we don't magnify enough. Yes, salvation gives us an eternal home in heaven and a hope for the glory of heaven, but it also gives us a relationship every day with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in that, we find hope to endure today and tomorrow and the next day. So when believers say we have hope, this is what we're talking about. It's not hope like what we often talk about in our, in our daily language because that really falls short of what biblical hope is. See, today in our, in our vernacular, we say, we say we hope in a lot of things, right? I hope that the Kentucky Wildcats win the national championship this year. I hope they do. I hope the Cubs, I hope that next year is the Cubs year. Every year. I've only been right once in 120 years. Okay, I hope, I hope that when I go to the dentist, I won't have any cavities. I hoped that when Joe Burrow went down against the Ravens, it wasn't a, a season-ending injury. See how well that went. And that's why today I don't have any hope that they're going to beat the Steelers at all. I'm just, my brother can gloat for one year, I guess, what, right? We hope that the boss will take notice of our hard work and will take notice in the extra hours we're putting in and maybe give us that raise or that promotion. We have hope in all of those things, right? We hope in January every year that a new diet or a new gym membership will translate into better health and a better waistline, but the truth is that none of that is hope. None of it. It's really just wishful thinking. It's really just, you know, I'm going to cast my desires up in the air and just hope that someone out there in the universe grasps it and makes it a reality, but I have no control over that, except for maybe the gym membership and the diet thing. But when the Bible says hope in this, when the Bible says put your hope in this, it isn't saying place your wishful thinking in this. I'm thankful for that. When the Bible says have hope, it's not saying put your wishful thinking in Jesus. When the Bible says have hope in Jesus, it's saying live in the promise as though it's already been fulfilled. Because it has. In God, every promise is, that he makes is fulfilled. It's already a done deal. Biblical hope is the, it rests in the trustworthiness of God to keep his promises. And if we're hoping in something that's outside of God's promises, it's not something that we really should be having hope in anyway. Some of us place our hopes, put false hopes on God, hopes that God never promised to do. So don't hold God to the promises that he never made. We got to be careful not to do that. But when God has made a promise, you can trust it and you can, you can hold on to it. So that's what I want to keep us in mind as we look at our text today. And we're going to cover chapters 49 through 52, like I said. But I want to look at uh, really closely at chapter 49. Okay, so let's begin in verse number 1, uh, reading through verse number 12. It says, coasts and islands. Basically, that's just the, basically he's saying, he's like, from coast to coast, from, from everywhere, listen to what I have to say. 
Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born, Isaiah is uh, talking. Or actually, he's introducing a new servant. The servant says, before I was born, he named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow, and he hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I myself said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and futility, yet my vindication is with the Lord. And my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord. And my God is my strength. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of <clears throat> the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, says to the one who is despised, to one that is abhorred by people, to a servant of rulers, kings will see, princes will stand up, and they will all bow down because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel, he has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, I will answer you in a time of favor, and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you, I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to make them possess desolate inheritances saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They will feed along the pathways. Their pastures will be on all the barren heights. They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them, for their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs. I will make my mountains into a road. My highways will be raised up. See, these will come from far away in the north and from the west and from the land of Sinim. It's a beautiful and poetic prophecy of Christ and the servant of God, right? He's the Messiah who's going to restore us. He's going to, he's going to restore those who are afflicted. It goes on to drive the idea home even more. But let's jump down to verse number 22 and see the promise that continues. This is what the Lord God says in verse 22. Look, I will lift up my hand to the nations. I will raise my banner to all the people. They will bring your sons in their arms. Your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians. And the queens, your nursing mothers, they will bow down to you with their faces to the ground and lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord and that those who put their hope in me will not be put to shame. Did you, did you catch that, that key verse right there? Then they will know that I'm the Lord. Their hope, those who place their hope in the Lord will not be put to shame. Now let's look over to chapter 50 real quick and look at verse number 10. Chapter 50 verse 10 says this, Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and let him lean on his God. Father, I thank you for the hope that we can have in you. Thank you that this is not just wishful thinking that we can have in you, but it's a confidence that gives us courage and strength even as we wait for the promise to be fulfilled. Lord, I pray now that you would guide us as we look at, our wor at your word and you would draw on your truth. That you would feed us, that you would fill us from it, and that you would sustain us with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we look at this section of Isaiah, there's three things that we can find hope in on this first Sunday of Advent. And then I want to look at, as we close out this morning as well, how do we respond to that hope that has been offered to us? We have three things that we can find hope in, but one thing, what is our response to that? First of all, the first thing that God has given us to have hope in is a servant. 
We have a servant that we can place all of our hope in. The book of Isaiah gives us four specific, uh, four specific identifications or presentations of a servant that God has chosen that is going to come and do a, a mighty task. They're called the servant songs of Isaiah. There's four of them. We looked at one last week. Today we're going to look at two of the servant songs, and then next Sunday we're going to be looking at the last servant song as well. You find them in Isaiah 42, you find it in Isaiah 49 and in 50, and then also in 52 through 53. So these servant songs are basically an idea, it's, it's a prophecy of what's going to happen, what's going to come. It's where we get the messianic prophecies. When we say messianic, it's basically the prophecies that Isaiah wrote hundreds and a thousand, if not more years before Jesus came to earth, saying that there's going to come a Messiah. And then Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise in every single way. Every prophecy that was made of the Messiah was fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's how we can trust that Jesus is the Messiah. So when we think of the word servant, what kind of, what kind of picture comes to your mind? When you hear the word servant, what jumps out at you? What, what kind of picture comes to mind? For me, when I think of the word servant, I go back to like the Victorian days of England, and I think about, if anybody know the show Downton Abbey? Like that's what I think of when I think of servant. I think of like, you know, Carson, the butler, standing very, you know, like this. And, you know, you have the people that live downstairs and they serve the people that live upstairs, you know, the nobility. And it's all very hoity-toity and just sickeningly, like, just, you know, just stupid. Uh, but anyway, um, <clears throat> but, you know, that's the idea of a servant I had. Someone that trains to actually serve people that were wealthy and they were able to do that. And they lived their lives and, and, and basically to serve these people. But the servants were basically this. They were people that were entrusted with, uh, with the, the household stuff and they were supposed to manage it. We talked a little bit like that a couple of weeks ago in a message. But what the servant is here in the servant songs, it's different than that. It goes way above someone who's just employed to serve you. The servant that is, that is mentioned here is someone who is trusted. He's a trusted envoy. He's like this royal representative that holds in confidence the great keys to the kingdom and the secrets of the kingdom. He's not someone who just filled out an application and was hired. He's someone who was chosen and bred and born for this very task. That's what the servant is in the servant songs. And so that's what we have to understand. We look at this servant, we understand that he's not just somebody that God chose out a whole long list of things. No, Jesus is the only one that could fulfill the task that we're looking at here. He's the only one. So there's this sanctification of his servant that Jesus, the Bible says in our text, said he was called out before he was even born. While he was in his mother's womb, he was called out, meaning he was sanctified and he was set apart to do a holy thing. Remember in the New Testament when the angel comes to Mary and says, you're carrying a child that's going to save the world from their sins? It was a very, it's always like that song, Mary, did you know? I think the answer is yes. She was kind of told from the very beginning, right? Let's save people a whole lot of years of wandering, but thankful for the really pretty song. The servant is named while he's still in his mother's womb. Didn't the angel tell Mary that the name would be called Emmanuel, Right? If, if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, because I look back, and the hardest, one of the hardest things we did while we, were, while we were waiting for our two daughters was to decide on the name, right, until we finally just put names in a basket and chose them. No, I'm just teasing you all. We, we, thought, we thought longer about those names, right? Basically came down to, dear, whatever you want. No. Um, so, no, that's cool. Anyway, it, it goes on to say that this servant is set apart, and God gives him everything that is necessary. If you look on in the text that we just read. 
It says he set him up for success. He gave him arrows and he gave him everything. He gave him the tools that were needed. This servant that was brought. We see the purpose of his servant is outlined in verses 3 through 12. That God's overall purpose in sending the servant was that God would be glorified. God would be glorified in what was done. And how would God be glorified? By redeeming Israel and by redeeming the world of their sin. Verse number five, the servant's purpose is to gather Jacob or Israel back into fellowship with God. That fellowship was broken through years of rebellion which led to exile in Babylon. And so verses four and in verses seven and eight, we see that there's a time that the servant fulfilling his task would look at it and would feel as though he has failed at what he's done. It's not gonna look like the servant has actually been successful. And when all hope seems lost, that's the moment that God will bring his vindication. He'll be rejected, he'll be hated, he'll be scorned, but that his ultimate vindication will come from God and that he'll ultimately be rewarded with great success from God. Then we see that the reach of his servant in verses 13 through 26, the successful purpose of redemption doesn't just apply to Israel. That redemption, that calling Jacob back into fellowship with God extends beyond Jacob. It extends into the Gentile world as well. Then we broke our fellowship with God through sin. The servant restores that fellowship. By bringing us through. And it says that one day kings and queens and princes will all bow down and find their redemption and vindication in him. And then it says, and I love this, that God will smooth out every mountain, every highway, and clear every path towards him. I love that phrase that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Right? There are many things that bring us to the cross. But God has brought every one of us to level ground, that none of us have a leg up and none of us have a leg down on that. That is all level. We all come the same way. We come by repentance and confession and desperation for salvation through Him. So what we see culminating uh, in this verse that we read just a little while ago in verse number 26. He says, I will make your oppressors to eat their own flesh. They will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine, then all humanity will know that I, I the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer and the Mighty One of Jacob. So there's coming a point when there's going to be no other way to look at it but that I am God, He is the Messiah, and redemption, and only redemption comes only through Him. Then we look at the plight of His servant. Chapter 50 goes on to give us some other details about how his servant's going to provide this redemption. In verse number four, it says that he'll be a great teacher. He'll comfort us. But in verses five and six, let's look at this in Isaiah chapter 50. It says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I didn't turn my back. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and from spitting. So see, not only did the servant have great success, but there was great pain on his way to success. There was great suffering on the way. We'll talk more about that next Sunday in detail. But after seeing all this in the description of the servant, I kind of buried the lead already, but who do we think this servant is? We know the fulfillment is Jesus Christ. We know the fulfillment. Everything that was promised of this servant in chapters 49 and 50 is played out in the life of Jesus Christ. He was chosen while he was in his mother's womb. Before he was even placed in his mother's womb, he was chosen for that task. He was the only begotten son of God. He was named while he was in, the mother's womb, in his mother's womb. And you will call him Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. 
He had his back torn open by the cat of nine tails. He had his beard plucked out while he was being taunted and, more, and, taunted, and he was rejected by even his own people. All of this is pointing to Jesus Christ, this servant that we can have hope in. Why can we have hope in him? Because all of a sudden, Isaiah is setting this all up in chapter 49 and to make us realize that this servant is our hope. This is the servant that God chose and ordained and put on the planet so that we could find redemption. So that Israel could be brought back into right fellowship with God and so that Gentiles could be brought into a place of fellowship and a part of his kingdom as well. So we have hope in this great servant. Jesus is the great servant of God in whom we have hope. Now let's consider this. We have great hope in his servant. We have great hope in his salvation as well. Why do we hope in his servant? Because of what the servant offers. The servant offers us salvation. Jesus offers us redemption. Salvation is what restores us to that good fellowship with God. Right in 49 verse 5, we saw that ultimately what God did was restore fellowship from Israel with God. Restoring that covenant, being the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant. But then going a step further, not just to Israel, but remember that part of the Abrahamic covenant that said, I will bless all nations through you as well. So he's fulfilling the covenant to Israel that I will be be your God and you will be my people and through you, you will become a mighty nation and all nations through you will also be blessed. It brought Jacob back and gathered Israel back to God. It brought them back from exile in Babylon. They came back from being exiled and brought back home to Jerusalem. But for us, salvation also restores us to a good fellowship with God. Because we are also the ones who partake in Adam and Eve's sin as well. We partake in the death that was brought to us by Adam and Eve. And so God is restoring us away from that as well. Through salvation in Christ, we can now be brought back into the fold and have a right relationship with Him. See, salvation, and this is important for us to understand, salvation is not just a future ticket to a future heaven. That's not, that's not all it is. If it, that's all it was, that would be more than we deserve. But that's not all it is. Salvation is a present restoration of a relationship with him that we enjoy today. Up until the moment we're saved, we don't know what it's like to walk in fellowship with our creator. But once we're saved, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and we walk in daily fellowship and our prayers become daily conversation with him. And when we look in the word of God, it becomes a daily word, his voice speaking into our lives. Man, yes, heaven out in the future is great, but let's not sleep on the relationship that we have with him today. I feel like so many of us spend so much time just squandering away the time that we have to walk in sweet fellowship with him, just waiting for the day we get to be in his presence in heaven. Don't squander, don't squander the present joy of a relationship with him just waiting and saying, oh, it'll be good one day. It'll all be better in the by and by. Yes, but it can also be good in the here and now. We have a hope in his salvation that restores us to a good fellowship with him In verse number 7, we see also that salvation redeems us from the condemnation of sin. Verses 7 through 10 of of, of chapter 50. Let's let's look at this because it's important that we don't miss this. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is near, and who will contend with me? Let us confront each other who has a case against me. Let him come near me. In truth... The Lord God will help me. Who will condemn me? Indeed, all of them will wear out like a garment. 
a moth will devour them. And who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. What we see is that salvation brings a vindication from the weight of sin. It brings a forgiveness and a pardon from the case of sin that is brought against us. Once we come to Christ, that great servant who takes our sin for us, we have no sin, therefore, to be condemned with anymore. Because Jesus, the servant, has taken it on himself. It's a salvation that is made available to everybody who trusts in the Lord as well. We've already talked about that, so I won't belabor the point. But it wasn't just for Israel. We also see at this point that the Messiah will, is also prophesied that he'll be the Savior of the Gentile as well, of the rest of the world. The invitation to lean on God there in verse number 10 is not just for Israel, but it's for anyone who would place their trust in God. Anyone. And I love that invitation too. Isn't that just an intimate invitation? That God says, lean on me. It almost gives a picture of God in his greatness and in his majesty, having his arm out and saying, just lean in. Just lean in like a father does to a kid, does to his child, or, does to some, does, or like a husband to his wife, or a wife to her husband just says, lean in and find whatever you need right here. He says, lean in on me. He says, my righteousness, in verse number 5 of chapter 51, I know we're moving quick, I'm sorry. My righteousness is near. My salvation appears in verse number 5. My arms will bring justice to the nations. The coasts and the islands will put their hope in me and they will look to my strength. Did you catch that first phrase? He says, my, my righteousness is near and my salvation appears. See, this is written with the essence of biblical hope. It's not just something that I hope will happen. It's I can have hope in the fact that it's already been made sure. My righteousness is near. All you have to re do is reach out and receive it. It's not, it's not that I have to you know, follow someone down a road and get to where I need to go. No, I just trust Jesus. I grab hold of Jesus and he is near. I grab hold of Jesus and he is near. And he says, my salvation appears. See, the hope of salvation is not a matter of wishful thinking. It's a matter of a received promise. It's not a matter of wishful thinking. It's a matter of a received fact. And the Holy Spirit becomes that down payment on that promise of heaven. But again, I, I bring you to this. If you're looking at salvation as only a ticket to heaven, you may still be thinking that your relationship and the hope you have is just wishful thinking because you haven't seen heaven yet. But when salvation becomes more about the relationship that we have every day, it becomes more of that fact that you live in biblical hope with. That wasn't in my notes, so I hope you got that the first time because I'm not repeating it. I can't. So we have hope in his salvation, but then we also have hope in his security. It's a security that God will never abandon us. Let's go back again to chapter 49. We see in verse number 14 that Israel in their time of exile, what did they do? In chapter 49, it says they accuse God of abandoning and forgetting about them. In verse number 14, I believe it is. Let me go back and make sure of that. Yeah, in verse number 14, he says, Zion says, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord has forgotten me. And what does God say? He says, well, can a, can, can a nursing mother forget their children? It's even harder for me to forget you than it is for a mother to forget her own children. It's, it's, it's impossible for me to forget you, the ones I have created, the ones that I have covenanted with. Covenanted with. 
you have security. And then he goes on to say that he has inscribed Israel on the palm of his hands. Now, this is for those of you who argue about tattoos. Does this mean God has a tattoo? I don't know. That's a whole other message. But what it means is that God has every action that he puts his hand to has us in mind. I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands. You ever think about, like, if you, if you want to remember something really important and you don't have pen and paper, what do you do? You write it on your hand and you hope that you don't want, and then you don't wash your hands the rest of the day, right? Because you don't want to, but you do that, right? God has written us on the palm of his hands. Why? Because everything he puts his hand to has us in mind, his glory and our good in mind. It's a security that God doesn't abandon us. No, God hasn't forgotten Israel. He hasn't forgotten or abandoned any of his creation. It's a security that also protects his own. He doesn't abandon us, but he also protects us as well. This is something that is very relevant right now because when you consider what's going on in Israel, you may be thinking, well, what, what, what was God doing on October the 2nd? He didn't seem to be protecting Israel at that point. Remember that God works in ways that we don't understand. And God does, just like last week, God doesn't always ask us to understand everything he does. What he does invite us to do is to trust his heart in what he is doing and trust that his promises will be sure. This applies to to us in the sense, too, that protection lies in his hand and lying in his hand. And knowing that we are imprinted on the palm of his hand. He hasn't forgotten you and everything he does is for his glory and for your good. It's a security that God faithfully restores and redeems his own as well. In chapter 50, verse 1, God notes that he never divorced. He never separated from his people. It's a a continued response in 49 when when Israel's like, what happened? You gave up on... Basically what they were saying in, in chapter 14 of 49 is basically saying, what happened to that covenant, God? Where have you been? We've been sitting over here in Babylon for 70 years. Where have you been? And he said, I haven't divorced you. What he's saying is, I didn't put you away. You put me away. You wandered from me. I never divorced you. I never gave up on you. The distance between us and God is never created by God. We need to understand that. If there's distance between us and God, we were the ones who created it. God never creates that distance. We are the ones who wander on God, not the other way around. So those are three places that we find hope in. His servant, his salvation. We find hope in his security as well. And I'll work through those really quick because we're covering a lot today. But the last thing as we get ready to close this morning is this. How do I respond to the hope? How do I respond to that hope that we've just seen, that's just been like, that we've seen right here in the text, in the word of God? How do I respond to the hope that I have in his servant? How do I respond to the hope that I have in his salvation? How do I respond to the hope that I have in his security? The only thing we can do is just embrace that hope. But it's a choice. I can either hope, I can place my hope in him, or I don't have to. I can place it in something else. Chapters 51 through 52, we really see this overall invitation to respond in the hope that is offered. Here's the thing. What good is this hope that we celebrate and that we remember if we don't actually hold on to it? Hope is nothing if it's not held by anyone. So the first thing that he says that we need to do, and all of these are going to be, are going to be things that we need to, to do that take us upward. The first thing is this, is to listen up. How do I respond? I need to listen up. 
verses 1 through 5 of chapter 51. He says, you need to listen up. Look at what it says in verse number 1. And this isn't on the screen, but he says this. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father. Look to Sarah who gave birth to you. When I called him, he was only one, and I blessed him and made him many. He says, listen up. Listen to the things that you've been told. Listen to chapters 49 through 50. Listen to the promises of God's covenant. Listen to that. Isaiah is telling them that the promise still remains and to live in the hope of that promise. And yes, over 70 years in Babylon, they'd begun to forget about the promise. They began to think that maybe God just gave up. But God is reminding them, I will not give up. When I make a promise, I keep my word. And my word is stronger than your ability to keep your end of the bargain. So he says, listen up. We're challenged to enter into the covenant of the gospel that if we would receive Jesus as our Savior, he would be our Savior. That if we would trust him, if we would repent of our sins, that he would save us. That's our thing that we need to listen up to. We need to listen up and repeat the gospel often to be reminded of just what Jesus has done for us. We also need to, how do we live in hope when we respond? We need to look up as well. God says for us to look up as well. Look at verse number 6 in chapter 51. He says, Look up to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants will die like gnats, but my salvation will last forever and my righteousness will never be shattered. Why does God say look up to the heavens and then look at the earth beneath? Because what he's saying is you will find nothing on earth or below earth or anywhere else in this universe that is more trustworthy than my word. There is nothing that you can place your trust in that is more trustworthy than me and my promises that I have given you. He says, my promise of salvation will last forever. Long after these trees burn up and the earth is rolled up like a scroll, like the word says, we'll still be saved. Catch that? Long after everything else is gone, the ground that we even stand on, long after all of that that we put our hope and we just accept as just givens, long after all of that is gone, we'll still be saved if we trust in Christ. Look up, look around, and realize that no matter what you see or how far you can see out, God rests above all of that. And that's why his hope, that's why we can hope in him. Look up and around you, but why does it say it will last forever? And what will, what will last? His salvation and his righteousness. Like Peter walking on the water, our hope is most secure when we don't take our eyes off of him. Our hope is most secure when we don't start looking around at everything else, but we look up and we look through all of that and we see God seated on high. So he says to look up. He also says that we need to wake up. He says that we need to wake up. Man, that's hard after being in a Thanksgiving coma for the past couple of days, isn't it? This is a line that's repeated quite often, and I find that it's poetic through this passage because Israel, at this point that this is written, as is prophesying at the end of the Babylonian exile, has to be thinking that, man, they've just been living a nightmare living in exile in Babylon. And that might be you today. You might be thinking, Pastor... <laughs> I'm living a nightmare right now. Might be a health diagnosis. Might be bill struggles. It might be, because as wonderful as this time of year is, for some people it's painful and it's hard because it remember, reminds us of loss. It reminds us of pain. It reminds us of family dysfunction or something. So you might be thinking, man, I can identify with the nightmare 
that Israel was probably living through. Well, let's consider what God said to them. He said to wake up. It's not the way that they would think God would have chosen his nation to exist when the people were thinking, man, this has got to be a nightmare. This, is, this can't be the way God, and it, it, God thought that it should be for us. And they're right. Because of their rebellion, they landed themselves in Babylon. But because of their rebellion, and even in spite of their rebellion, God did not leave them while they were in Babylon. He was with them. God uses this time of exile to grab their attention and restore an understanding of their need for him. So God is telling them it's time to wake up. The nightmare is over. Wake up because there's a new day in salvation. And for us, we're encouraged to wake up from spiritual death to spiritual life. Our wake-up call, Israel's wake-up call was, it's time to go home from Babylon. It's time to leave. Our wake-up call is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, of everlasting life. Our wake-up call is while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God loved us. God commended his son toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So he says it's time to wake up. But he also says to sober up. Verse number 17 through 23 gives us this metaphor that Israel has been forced to drink this, what the Bible says is a cup of fury or a cup of wrath. He says, you've been drinking on this cup of fury and wrath and judgment for a long time, and you've drank from that, and you are just drunk on it. It's all you've been taking in, and you are reeling from the effects of it, right? And God says, it's time to have that cup taken out of their hand. It's time to sober up to the joy of a right relationship with God. God says in our text that he's now going to pass the cup off to the enemy who would seek to continue in rebellion. It's an invitation for Israel and those that were suffering to sober up. You don't have to drink the cup of judgment anymore. You don't have to drink the cup of God's wrath because forgiveness has come. And what I find so beautiful is if you flip over to Matthew chapter 26, we see another cup of wrath mentioned as well. If you remember, when Jesus was in the garden on the night before his crucifixion, it says, going a little further into the garden, he fell face down and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will but as you will. What cup was Jesus talking about here? Could it be the same cup of fury and wrath that when Jesus died on the cross, when he suffered from our sins, he drank from that same cup of condemnation, of sin, of wrath? Yeah. He drank from that cup because it was the only way that that cup could be passed from us. So God invites us to no longer pull from that cup anymore, to sober up and come to a place of good fellowship with him. And then he says quickly, stand up. In chapter 52, he says, stand up, shake the dust off yourself, take your seat, Jerusalem, remove the bonds from your neck, you captive daughter of Zion. What's Isaiah saying here? It's time to get up, it's time to leave Babylon, and it's time to go back home. He says in verse number 11 of 52, leave, leave, go out from there. Don't touch anything unclean. Go out from her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord, for you will not leave in a hurry. You will not have to take flight because of the Lord is going before you and the God of Israel is your rear guard. Second week in a row, we see God say, leave, get up, get out of Babylon. It's time to go. It's God's invitation. Grab hold of me and I will carry you home. I will carry you home. And then lastly, we see that we're supposed to speak up. Verse 7 through 10, look at what it says here. 
How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices shouting for joy together. For every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. Be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Babylon. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. What's he saying? If you want to live in hope, a good, a good testament that you're living in hope is that you share that hope that you have with other people. He says, speak up. How beautiful are the feet that share the peace of God. For Israel, it was a command to pronounce a great victory and offer praise to the Lord. For us, it goes right along with the great commission that Jesus gave when he says, go and make disciples. When he returned back to heaven, he says, until I come again, pronounce peace. Go and share the hope that you have in me. So how do we respond to the hope that we have in him? We rest in it, we wake up to it, we walk in it, and we share it as much as we can. So I know we kind of flew through a lot of information today, right? But the biggest question that we have as we come down to the end of this today is, what's my response going to be to the servant, to the Messiah? Have you received him as Christ? Have you received him as your Savior? If you haven't, let today be that day. How do I respond to the salvation that comes only through him? (laughs) Man, if you have it, live in it and enjoy it. And live in the relationship that you're given in that salvation. Don't just wait to enjoy it when you get to heaven. Enjoy the relationship that you have with him now. And the security that you have. Live that with your head held high, knowing that my sins are a thing of the past. That forgiveness is given to me. And how do I respond to that? I share that hope with other people. Am I sharing that with others? So two questions before we're done. Do you have that hope? And if you have it, are you living in it? So we bow our heads this morning and close our eyes and we go to a time of response. Just pray that God will have his way as we respond. Father, we love you and thank you. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.